Hi, everyone. We are back for another episode of the Houndstein Center's podcast series, Off the Stage. My name is Maddie Miller, and I am the media specialist for the Houndstein Center. Today on the podcast, I get to interview James Ramoser, who is the editor of SCOTUS Blog and in Grand Rapids for our event tonight called Eyeing the Bench, a Supreme Court Panel. Thank you, James, for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Great. So we are going to start off the episode today with a few questions from our infamous BOQ, which stands for Bowl of Questions. So for those listening, these are questions that were submitted this week via social media, and James is going to pick a few at random to answer. So you can reach in there, grab one. Okay, reaching in. Reaching I'm in. A, I'm a little nervous. I have no idea what's in this bowl. Yeah, it, it is gonna, really a bowl of I'm mystery. I'm going to dig, dig something out from the bottom here to make it truly random. Great, great. Okay. I have found one. Let's see. Let's see what it says. <laughs> <laughs> How early is it acceptable to eat to lunch? Wow. Wow. So this is um, this is an interesting question. Okay. And I think it's really fact dependent, as as they say in yeah. the in the le- in the legal industry. It depends on whether you're a person who eats breakfast or not. Like if yeah. you're a big breakfast person, then I like to postpone lunch till sort of a later, like a one or two p.m. Oh, okay. Unfortunately, I'm not very good about eating breakfast. Okay. So usually I eat like one large meal around like eleven fifteen a.m. Yeah. I don't know if that counts as lunch because it's my first meal of the day. Yeah. Is it like lunch food or breakfast food? Interesting. Normally. It's lunch food, but I'm kind of anti-breakfast food in general. Really? So even if I ate like a true breakfast at a normal time, I would probably eat like more savory foods. Yeah. You know, like even like leftovers from from the night before. Okay. Because you know I'm not like a big not like, into cereal person. Food. Okay. You know, I don't know. Yeah. So yeah. what about what about brunch then? When you go to a brunch place, yeah. are you getting lunch food or are you getting breakfast food? If they have lunch food, I'll probably go for lunch. Okay. But I just think that you can't really call it brunch if it's like on like a Tuesday. Yeah. I, think oh. brunch, I think brunch has to be like on a weekend. On a weekend. Like at, you know, out okay. at a restaurant. Yeah. But, uh, you know, sometimes, um, you know, I'll be in my home office like listening to Supreme Court or oral arguments, which usually run from 10 a.m. to noon. Yeah. And like I'll have the the argument on in my in my headphones and I'll be making a little sandwich yeah. around 11, <laughs> you know, to keep me going. Mm-hmm. I don't know what meal I would call that. Maybe I'm just sort of a, a you know, a radical in this area. I don't like to adhere to the strictures yeah. of the formal you know, meal makes um, sense. Specifications. Yeah. Well, I love that. That was a great answer. That was a great <laughs> um, question for you. <laughs> okay, let's. I do would another. say eat whenever you want, whenever you're hungry. Yeah. Don't eat abide by hungry. society's rules. Right, let's <laughs> see what else. That we is got. a hot take right there. <laughs> let's see what else we got. I like the handwriting on these uh, oh, slips of paper. Oh, thank you. It's um, our office assistant Allie did those for me. So. <laughs> okay. Next question. What's an easy item on your bucket list that you haven't done yet? Mm. Oh, God, my bucket list. I'm not sure I have a bucket list. Okay. Okay, so I suppose I would have to say definitely want to go visit China. Speaking okay. of food items, yeah. I'd love to do like kind of a just a food tour of China, of all the different China. regions. Okay. Love Sichuan food. I've always loved it. I grew up around New York, ate a lot of Sichuan food in yeah. New York. It's sadly lacking in D.C. where I currently live. Okay. And I have some friends who have uh, sort of traveled through China and just, you know, sort of ate their way through the country. And wow. it's just such a rich, obviously, culture. And there's so much food culture, so much, yeah. so many different cuisines that you can explore. Um, little tough to China, little tough to travel to China right now, but hopefully someday. Yeah, someday. I will, I will get there. That is, that is great. I didn't know that China had so many different, like, 
was such a food culture. Like, oh, I mean, there's just so, I, there's just like, so, you know, there's there's just so many. I mean, Sichuan's my favorite, but, yeah. you know, you have like, you know, Hunan cuisine, you, and then you have other, many different other types of yeah. regions that you wouldn't even, wouldn't even seem like Chinese food. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's... Um, good stuff that's great well thank you for answering two questions from our bowl of questions <laughs> i hope that they um made this podcast off to a good start so now we're going to transition into some questions more geared towards your life and how you became passionate about journalism so first let's just talk about kind of um, a little bit of your like childhood and growing up so where did you grow up what was your family like and what were you interested in and did for fun like in high school and college well, I grew up in New Jersey, um, in su- suburban North Jersey, uh, right outside New York. And um, to be honest, you, you know, you, you mentioned sort of my, my interest in journalism, my passion for journalism, and that's really been a lifelong passion. Even when wow. I was a kid, I um, sort of became obsessed with, with newspapers and, uh, st- mm-hmm. you know, even when I was a kid trying to put out my own little little newspapers and, of course, <laughs> worked for my high school newspaper and, and all that jazz. And yeah. from an early age, really knew that I wanted to be in journalism in some capacity uh, that also defined my my college years i basically yeah. spent all my time in college skipping classes and instead working at the the college <laughs> newspaper for for better or worse yeah and um so i think that that set me up on my career trajectory yeah that's awesome well okay so your twitter bio has this sentence that i think is so funny that says briefly was a lawyer until i remembered i like journalism too much so i love that statement especially because i actually was a journalism major um in college for a little bit before i switched to communications but um also it shares a lot of insight into just i'm sure what i'm sure is an interesting story so tell us a little bit about your decision to go to law school and then go back to journalism yeah so despite the narrative i just told which makes it sound real real you know clean like oh i always <laughs> loved journalism i became a journalist and yeah I've been a journalist ever since no it's not quite that yeah. that easy <laughs> unfortunately i uh well, fortunately and unfortunately i would say I, um, I, I made a slight detour. So after college, I, I moved down to North Carolina and okay. worked as a newspaper reporter down there for the Winston-Salem Journal, a great newspaper, um, covering state politics and, uh, and a lot of other things. But um, I made the fatal mistake, which a lot of journalists make, which <laughs> is um, they sort of always had the idea of going to law school in the back of their mind. And so okay. I, I, I went to law school decided I might want to try it, try something else out, make yeah. it, possibly make a change. Yeah. Ended up going to law school, really loving law school. Then when I went out to practice law, didn't love that part of it yeah. too much. Didn't really like being a lawyer. And so after about a year, I decided I was done with being a lawyer and mm-hmm. wanted to go back to journalism. And of course, it seemed like a natural fit to try to focus on legal journalism and at least mm-hmm. use that JD yeah, for, for, for something and, and not have it go totally to waste. So in hindsight, I don't regret uh, having yeah. gone to law school and I don't regret the detour. I think I got a great education yeah. and I don't think I would be in my current job doing, um, doing a job I really love today if I hadn't mm-hmm. gone to law school. But um, it was uh, a more circuitous path than yeah. just deciding to do journalism and sticking with that. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I'm curious as to what, like, when you decided um, to, like, not be a lawyer anymore and then go into journalism, what were, like, the conversations that you had, like, with your friends and family? Were they, like, totally supportive or were they, like, 
are you sure? Or what was that kind of like? I would say the answer is yes to that question. <laughs> I heard both of those yeah. responses and everything in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some people um, really encouraged me to to do it, uh, and you know, other people um, I think you know were concerned that it was a big risk that I was sort of mm-hmm. jumping back into a field without um, you know w- w- without a lot of like certain prospects, right? And so. Um, yeah, and there's also the the financial aspect. Frankly, I mean, people yeah. pe- people thought I'd be giving up, you know, a lot, you know, giving up, yeah, giving up sal- uh, sal- salary potential and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That really never entered my mind. I'm not in this for the money, but, yeah. um, but you know, you, you you hear all kinds of reactions. But you know, I'm you know, going back to the uh, the the brunch versus breakfast versus lunch <laughs> debate. You know, I'm a risk taker at heart. I try not to yeah. adhere to strictures, and so. I, I was happy to just sort of jump ship from my corporate law job and, yeah. and, and try to try to make it in journalism again. Yeah, well, that's those stories are always inspiring to hear because I actually did an entire year of grad school and then quit. And so I was in that same thing of like, should I just stick it out even though I know this isn't what I want to do? So it's great to hear that. It's not about the money. It's about going towards what you're if passionate you know about. If you know something's not right for you, you know, you, yeah. you, you got you to gotta have the courage to, to quit and try something new. For yeah, sure. exactly. Like, life is too short. Exactly. Um, okay, so I did, um, like I said, a little research, and I saw that you co-founded Circuit Breaker, which, for those listening, is a website that provided news and information about the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. So I went to the website and saw that it's on a bit of a hiatus. Tell us a little bit about the that idea in the beginning, and then if you think it's a project that will ever start back up. Yeah, that's that's um, that's a that's a that's a deep cut. Yeah. yeah. So Cir- Circuit Breaker was a website that I founded with uh, my very good friend and colleague, Katie Barlow, with whom I went to law school and who also is also now a journalist, a legal journalist. And um, basically, it was a site devoted to covering news, like you said, about the D.C. Circuit, which is the federal appeals court in the District of Columbia. Many people have called that the second most important court in the country after the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is, well, there are several reasons for that. I mean, for for one thing, it's kind of a feeder court for Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court, for Supreme Court justices. I think that there are three current sitting justices who originally served on the D.C. Circuit, three out of nine. Um, And in addition, um, and more importantly, the D.C. Circuit hears a lot of challenges to really important federal policies Mm -hmm. and resolves those challenges. And so it's an extremely important court, and Katie and I felt that it wasn't getting enough attention, you know, in the public and in the media, and we thought mm-hmm. that there should be a resource for covering what the D.C. Circuit was doing yeah. on a day-to-day basis. I mean, sort of like what SCOTUS blog does for the Supreme Court. Yeah. And um, so we sort of founded this as a side project. Um, as you mentioned, it is definitely on a hiatus, so if anyone goes to the website, they're going to see you know, it's, it's not, it hasn't been updated in, in quite a while, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what we're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I continue to think that there is a, a role for um, targeted coverage of mm-hmm. lower courts. I yeah. think many legal journalists, and, I, you know, I'm included in this, mm-hmm. focus on the Supreme Court, uh, rightfully so, but... There is a ton happening in the lower courts, both in the lower federal courts and and also in the state courts, Mm -hmm. which really doesn't get as much scrutiny and really often has just as big an impact on people's lives. So um, 
you know, yeah, as a general matter, I think it's really important that we think about lower courts like the D.C. Circuit. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's, Katie and I have talked about what we, what we might end up doing with it someday. We haven't made any decisions, but, but yeah, um, definitely, definitely follow the, the lower courts as, as well as the Supreme Court if you're, in, if you're interested in, in legal news. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's great to hear. Um, those, oftentimes those side projects are like what, fuel us to like do better at our um real career and whatnot so i love hearing that um so for scotus blog you write a bunch of different pieces and actually as i was researching i was just reading an article that you wrote about the supreme court case about the trademark issues between jack daniels whiskey (laughs) and then a company that makes dog toys that resemble the jack daniels bottle which i just thought was funny because you know, for me, someone not really super involved um, in politics and whatnot, when I think of the Supreme Court, I generally think of, like, very serious issues. And so I kind of forget that there are just such a wide range of issues. So my question, all that to say, my question is, in the last year, what was the hardest case to write about and the most energizing case to write about? That's a great question. That's a great question. I'm going to have to think about that for a second. Yeah, no problem. Hardest case to write about and and most energizing yeah yeah okay so well one thing I, I will say I'm going to expand the question a little bit because sure. my primary role at SCOTUS blog is as an editor I do try to write some um, I have a, a column that I write uh, but uh, but I don't write about all of the cases and yeah. most of the big cases actually are reporter Amy Howe is the primary mm-hmm. writer on, and so I'm not writing about those. But I'm going to include all the cases of the Supreme Court here in the spirit of your question because yeah. I'm, I'm very, I'm working very closely with yeah. with her on our coverage, and so so actually, um, you know, a lot of the blockbuster cases the Supreme Court has heard over the last year, including you know the, the case on gun rights, the case on abortion in America, mm-hmm. have have obviously been very difficult and divisive cases. Yeah. Um, but but I'm actually going to say for me the the, the toughest series of cases is death penalty cases. Okay. And this is um, a major and often overlooked part of the Supreme Court's work because often when states are um, setting executions for people on death row, mm-hmm. um, the, the, there are emergency requests that come up to the justices at the last minute in the days leading up to the execution in which prisoners are either seeking to block their executions or states are attempting to um, overturn lower courts that have put executions on hold. And the justices always need to resolve these cases um, on a very expedited basis. And obviously, there, there's, there's, there's no clearer example of a literally life and death yeah. issue that the justices are revolving. As you might imagine, the facts of these cases are, are quite, quite difficult um, yeah. in many cases. And... Um, you know, I've made it a, a you know a mission of Scotus Blog to make sure that we cover every single one of these death penalty cases, even though they're not heard for argument. They usually don't get formal opinions mm-hmm. from the court, but I think it's a really important part of what the Supreme Court does. And we currently have uh, one of the most pro death penalty courts in history. Yeah. Um, just last month, I think the Supreme Court green lighted I think six or seven different executions over the course mm-hmm. of just a few weeks. And um, I, t- I take those cases quite seriously. And, um, you know, they're, they're obviously fraught. And, um, you know, wherever you stand on capital punishment in America, you know, I think that this issue deserves 
a lot of attention. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, and then just to pull back to the second part of the question, yeah. your most energizing case, like what is there like a type of case or just one in particular that like you get really excited to like talk about and write about? Mm, yeah, interesting. Um, okay, let me think. So, um, so, so, so one case that is uh, really uh, quite interesting is, um, and, and that, that I like talking with people about, is a, a case the justices heard um, earlier this term involving a California animal welfare law. And basically what California said is that it is going to, it, it, it has indeed mm-hmm. banned the sale of uh of food products, if the um, if the if the, if the if the it banned the sale of of, of meat of pork, um, if the the animal wasn't raised in humane conditions, okay. um, so so on, on certain so certain pigs raised on factory farms it, the, the 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 pork can't be sold in okay. California, and so the, the 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 pork industry has challenged that. California law, which was actually mm-hmm. passed through a ballot initiative, um, under this, this uh, obscure constitutional provision called the the Dormant Commerce Clause, because um, there's basically no pig farms in California. They're all yeah. in places like North Carolina or Iowa. Mm-hmm. And the argument basically is that California is trying to regulate conduct that occurs in other states yeah and the idea is that california can say whatever it wants to its own pig farms but Uh it can't try to um reach out into iowa or north carolina and control how pigs are raised in those states and you have like a lot of competing interests it's a really interesting case because it scrambles the usual ideological makeup of the justices mm-hmm. you know you might think that the liberal justices are going to be on the side of california yeah. and the conservative justices are going to be on the side of you know big business and, okay. and agriculture but not really because some of the conservative justices don't even think that this dormant commerce clause is even a real thing yeah uh, the supreme court kind of made it up in the constitution it yeah. doesn't have much textual basis and there are also implications for other more divisive policy questions like abortion and the ability of states to regulate abortion across state lines. Yeah, so the case is called National Pork Producers Council versus Ross. Um, I would encourage people to check it out because it's sort of, um, you know, uh, less noticed, but um, it's a case that I find uh, deeply interesting. And uh, as you can tell, I, I have a lot of energy want to talk about that one and even like implications for other um cases and just how the supreme court works in general yeah exactly states and sometimes you listen to the oral arguments and in theory the they're talking about you know the facts of the case before them but mm-hmm. if you listen closely what they're really talking about is some other set of facts they're talking about something completely different and if yeah. you go back and listen to the oral argument in the pork case you know I don't even think the word abortion ever actually came up, but it was very clear that some of the justices were yeah. thinking and sort of talking in coded ways about abortion mm-hmm. and other social social issues that you know states will want to regulate across state lines. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, my, I have two more questions for you. Um, the second to last one is, in your 
biography, it says that you love the freedom of information. So is this in reference to the Freedom of Information Act of 1967 or just in general? And then what, why exactly do you think freedom of information is important to our country? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. Um, it, it, it is a reference to the Freedom of Information Act, FOIA, which I think yeah. is, 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 a, is a great it's a great law, and um, but in it, it, it's also meant to you know, um, it, it's it's also meant to refer to a general commitment to transparency. Yeah. And so one of the things that we try to do with SCOTUS Blog is bring transparency to a very opaque institution. The justices, for example, are not subject to FOIA. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, unlike the executive branch. And um, much of what they do, they do in secret. And, um, you know, they, um, of course, they hold, you know, public argument sessions, but those are not televised. Um, it, and, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's very difficult to, to attend those arguments in person. And the court increasingly is uh, making use of what has been termed the shadow docket, which is sort of a separate set of cases that come up to the Supreme Court in an emergency posture. They are decided very quickly based on little briefing, often with no reasoning or, or opinion. And so there's a lot of ways in which uh, the Supreme Court just does not operate as, transparent, so as transparently as it could. Um, yeah. Many of your listeners will be familiar with the ethics debates by the Supreme Court right now. They're not even mm-hmm. bound by a formal ethics code. And, and you've seen that with some of the questioning about Clarence Thomas and whether he ought to recuse himself in certain cases related mm-hmm. to January 6th, given the conduct of his wife, Ginny Thomas, who was involved in efforts to overthrow the 2020 election. And so there are a number of ethics and transparency issues around the Supreme Court. And one of the things that I try to do with SCOTUS blog is um, really bring light and shed light on some of those issues. Yeah, that's great. That is a great answer. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, our My last question for you is actually how I end all of our podcasts um, on this series. And that is, um, what advice would you give to somebody that is wanting to go into journalism or into your career field? Read a lot write a lot (laughs) i think you got to do both and they sort of interact with each other Mm -hmm. um and i think this goes even if you don't want to be a print journalist if you want to do you know broadcast or or podcasting or 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 be on tv i just think that you know working with words thinking about words Mm -hmm. thinking about how to communicate well is essential Mm -hmm. you know in journalism but also in life of course and um you know, I've always been a, a big reader, and you know, I've always found writing very difficult, but but also really loved writing. And mm-hmm. um, I think that um, you know, th- these these are these are skills that uh, you know will, will 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 serve folks well, you know, in any field. But but um, I mean, I think the, the the journalists that I admire the most are the ones who just can communicate really well. Mm-hmm. and crisply but with with flair and with style and so that would be my advice 
Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you um, for being on the podcast today. Our office is very excited for the event tonight and to have you speak. Um, I asked Adam this in the podcast, so I'm curious too. Do you get nervous to speak on stage or is it pretty routine for you? <laughs> I, I can never tell. You'll just have to try to, you'll have to come to the event and see if you can detect, yes. detect any, any jitters. <laughs> that's perfect. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to Off the Stage Podcast, a series produced by the Hauenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The Hauenstein Center, inspired by Ralph Hauenstein's life of leadership and service, is dedicated to raising a community of ethical, effective leaders for the 21st century. For more information on our center, our Cook Leadership Academy, or our Common Ground Initiative, visit our website at www.gvsu.edu. To keep up with our current events and reoccurring initiatives, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, all of which can be found linked below. If you liked this episode, consider giving us a review or rating so we can be found by other podcast listeners. Again, thanks for listening to Off the Stage Podcast.